2009, November 12th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 33, The Deaths of Stars. Well, yesterday, or yesterday, yesterday was a holiday. So the day before yesterday, we were talking about the lives of stars. And we spent our time concentrating on what stars do when they are on the main sequence, when they are stably fusing hydrogen into helium in their cores. And we saw what the properties of stars were on the main sequence and found that their lifetime was very strongly dependent upon their mass. High mass stars live very short lives. Low mass stars live very long lives. <clears throat> A question that I left unanswered, on the other hand, at the end of the last lecture, was what happens when the star runs out of hydrogen? We define this end of main sequence life. What's next? And of course, many of you picked up on that question and came up and asked me after class or by email. And so today's lecture answers that question. What happens to a star after it runs out of hydrogen? So today's lecture is entitled, The Deaths of Stars. This lecture is about what happens to a main sequence star after it runs out of hydrogen in its core. It never, it never exhausts all the hydrogen, but what, just the hydrogen in the core which is available for fusion. So it turns out the fundamental fact to bring away from this is when a star runs out of hydrogen, it doesn't go out, but it does evolve away from the main sequence. It can no longer be a main sequence star. What does it do? Well, that depends upon its mass. If it's a low mass star, and now we're going to define low mass meaning below about four times the mass of the sun, when a low mass star runs out of hydrogen, it will become a red giant and will eventually lose its envelope and leave behind a white dwarf. A high mass star, those above four times the mass of the sun, will become red supergiants. We'll see what that's all about in detail. And either they will end up as an oxygen neon magnesium white dwarf, if their masses lie between about four and eight times the mass of the sun, or if they're very massive, above eight times the mass of the sun, they will basically go through a series of nuclear reaction cycles until finally they will run out of possible fusion fuel, their core will collapse, and the star will detonate as a supernova explosion. What it will do is after it explodes, it will leave behind either a neutron star or a black hole as the remnant. Now then, supernova explosions are actually fairly interesting to us because it's in these supernova explosions you get a massive amount of nuclear fusion going on that leads to the creation of all of the heavy elements in the periodic table. Everything from carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen all the way up to uranium and beyond are created during those brief fiery moments of a supernova explosion. These elements are blasted out into interstellar space and they seed the interstellar gas out of which the next generation of stars will form. So today's lecture is going to be concerned with what happens when a star runs out of hydrogen in its core. And the answer is a whole bunch of interesting stuff. So, just to recap, a main sequence star, the stars lying along this diagonal band in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram that plots temperature on the horizontal axis from hot to cool and luminosity on the vertical axis from faint to bright, all these stars on the main sequence share one thing in common. They are all deriving their power. They are all getting the energy that they can generate to make up for the energy they're losing from their surfaces by luminosity by fusing hydrogen into helium in the central core. <clears throat> Where you are along this main sequence diagram is determined entirely by your mass. The very highest mass stars, the O and B stars, to use their spectral types, have masses above about four or five times the mass of the sun. They're very, very hot stars, and they're very high luminosity. 
They burn up their fuel much more rapidly compared to their larger fuel supplies for their mass. As we saw last time, they leave, live very short main sequence lifetimes. They basically burn through their available hydrogen fusion fuel in a few million years. So they're short-lived. The low-mass stars, the AFGKM stars that populate really most of the rest of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram in the main sequence, these are all the stars that in round numbers are less than about four times the mass of the sun. They tend to be from sort of middling hot to very, very cool stars. <clears throat> they tend to range down to the lowest luminosity stars. And they live very long main sequence lives. From stars like A stars, which live about a gig a year, to the lowest mass, coolest, faintest M, M main sequence stars, which can live upwards of a few hundred trillion years on some estimations. So we get a very wide range of possible ages, possible times that they can spend on the main sequence. And this age is defined by what we call last time the nuclear time scale. How long can a star stably fuse hydrogen to helium inside the core? So the next question is, well, what happens when it runs out? What happens when the fuel tank is dry and it no longer has hydrogen fuel in the core for fusion? Well, it turns out that when a star runs out of hydrogen, it doesn't go out. Because remember, stars shine because they are hot. All the nuclear fusion does is keep it hotter longer. It sustains that brightness. Well, what really happens now is a detail. Okay, Let's go back, step back a little bit to the main sequence. We've got hydrogen and helium in the core. Hydrogen is fusing at temperatures above 10 million degrees Kelvin into a helium nucleus and liberating energy. That helium that's created is not lost. It sits there in the core. It's not hot enough inside the core to ignite helium fusion. You've got to get up to temperatures of 100 million degrees Kelvin before helium fusion can kick in. So the helium basically has just nothing to do. It just sits around. And basically, it's like ashes inside of a fireplace. Right? The wood's what burns. The ashes are what's left because the fire's not hot enough to consume whatever carbon is in, those, in, in the ashes and junk left behind. So too, with hydrogen fusion, the helium is kind of the ashes of nuclear fusion. It has nowhere to go but to settle and sink into the middle. Well, over time, just like, you know, if you imagine you had a fireplace, clean it all out, throw in the first few logs, burn it up, you get a little bit of ashes in the bottom. And you're lazy and you never clean your fireplace. Throw in some more logs, light them up, let them burn down to ashes. Pretty soon, your firebox is going to be so full of ashes you can't put any wood in. Same thing happens in stars. The helium builds up to the point that you can't put any more wood, you can't put any more hydrogen into the core to be available for fusion. So what happens is, towards the end of the main sequence period, you basically end up with the entire core filling with helium. The outside of the core is just hot enough to sustain just a little tiny thin shell where hydrogen fusion can go on. And so the hydrogen fusion moves from the center and it gets shouldered into this shell around the inert helium core. So all stars, when they're just about on the cusp of leaving the main sequence, on that last gasp of core hydrogen fusion, all look more or less like this on the inside. They have an inert helium core surrounded by an increasingly hotter hydrogen burning shell. That hydrogen burning shell is what's trying to do its best to maintain the luminosity, maintain for the energy losses of the star at its surface. And you get a relatively cool extended envelope that's the rest of the mass of the star. Center we're talking about here ranges in mass between about a 10% up to a 20% of the mass of the star. Now what the star does next, at the moment that it poof, 
the last hydrogen runs out in the core, and the only hydrogen fusion left is in this thin shell, depends upon the mass of the star. So what we're going to do at this point is we're now going to break off and we're going to branch off into low-mass stars and then high-mass stars. I'm going to first describe what happens to a low-mass star, star like the Sun, and then we'll talk about what happens to high-mass stars. So the basic idea is this. When the hydrogen runs out, the star does not go off. It does not turn off. It doesn't do anything actually very spectacular at all. And what happens is its, its evolution changes. It begins to move away from the main sequence, and it begins to readjust its internal structure as it goes through the next phases of its, of its existence. So let's start by talking about low-mass stars. This is actually of relevance to us because, in fact, it's most of the main sequence, and most of the stars in the sky that we see are, in fact, low-mass stars. Hydrogen fusion gets shoved out into a shell surrounding by this in inert helium core. It turns out that hydrogen fusion is actually making more energy than the star can shine. It's kind of a paradoxical situation. While the star was on the main sequence, it's making almost, it's got this little thermostat going on. As long as fusion is going on in the core, the nuclear thermostat I described last time still works. If you make too much energy, the star swells up and compensates and damps the nuclear fires. Make too little, the star collapses a bit and heats back up and adjusts the rate of fusion just like a thermostat until you're making just as much energy on the inside as you're losing from the outside to starlight. But when helium, when the hydrogen fusion gets shoved into a shell by that big pile of helium ashes in the core, that thermostat gets upset. It no longer works as well as it used to. And in fact, what happens is the nuclear fusion actually runs, produces more energy than the star actually needs to make up for the losses on the surface. What does it do with that excess energy? Well, it can't store it anywhere. So what it does is that energy, instead of going into making starlight, goes into making work. It makes pressure. Now pressure is bigger than gravity, and the star will begin to expand. So the excess energy that the star makes in this phase goes into making the envelope around the core begin to expand. And as the envelope expands, it cools off. So I've shut down that beautiful thermal equilibrium going on before, and I've now disequilibrated the star. Not in a kaboom disequilibration way, but kind of in a gentle, oh, I guess I'm starting to get bigger now. And not by bigger, just meaning making its size get bigger. Its mass is the same. It's just getting fluffier. So what happens is the star begins to cool off, and cooling off means you begin to move to the right on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Remember, this runs from hot to cool from left to right on the diagram. The star gets slightly brighter, but it pretty much toodles along for a while, getting cooler and cooler and cooler at about constant luminosity. The nuclear fuel is just making up enough to swell it up and cool it, but just balancing off the luminosity. Until it starts getting very cool, and then the physics of how the energy gets out of the star begins to change, and the star starts swelling up like a balloon. In this case, it's swelling up so rapidly, the luminosity starts going right through the ceiling. And the star begins to be very cool and becoming very, very luminous. At this point, it becomes basically a red giant. So it moves off of the main sequence here in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, and its surface temperature drops and its brightness increases to where it moves into the part of the diagram occupied by the red giant stars. Now, meanwhile, deep inside the core, that helium core of ashes is beginning to contract under its own weight. It can't hold itself up against gravity, and it begins to shrink. As it shrinks, it gets hotter. 
as it gets hotter, it basically gets closer and closer to a magic temperature of about 100 million degrees Kelvin. By the time the star, sort of, you know, sitting there meandering slowly, climbing this red giant branch, reaches the top of the red giant branch, as bright as it will ever get, the core temperature reaches 100 million degrees. When that happens, helium fusion ignites, and it ignites in a flash. But the flash, of course, is surrounded by the immense envelope of the star, so we don't see anything on the outside right away. We just see this bright star, red giant, that used to be a main sequence star, but we don't see what's going on in the interior yet, is it actually now has found a new fusion fuel. And that new fusion fuel is helium fusion. Helium fusion is a triple fusion process. It creates as its products, in addition to energy, carbon and oxygen. Okay? Carbon is made by taking three helium nuclei and fusing them together into carbon. If you look at the periodic table, remember helium contains two protons and carbon contains six protons. So the so-called triple alpha or triple helium process makes carbon. It turns out at this temperature of 100 million degrees, if you have a carbon nucleus there and a helium comes by, some fraction of the time they will fuse to make a nucleus with eight protons. That's oxygen. So helium fusion leads to two fusion products. Carbon and oxygen as the nucleus, as the nuclear, nuclear products, plus it generates a little bit of energy. And that energy goes into restabilizing the star, because now you've got fusion in the core, you reestablish the thermostat, and the star will settle itself back down again. This process of climbing the red giant branch is slow and gradual. It takes about a billion years, for example, for a star the size of the sun to go from the point that it runs out of core hydrogen, about right here on this little knee in the HR diagram, to the time it reaches the top of the red giant branch and ignites helium in its core is roughly one billion years. In round numbers, about one-tenth of its main sequence lifetime. So it's a very slow, gradual process, but the star becomes a lot brighter. The sun at the top of the red giant branch will be 2,000 times brighter in round numbers than it is today. Very, very bright indeed. What are the consequences for the Earth when that happens? That's one of your homework problems, in fact. Okay. Now, when helium core fusion kicks in, the star actually begins to back off. It shrinks. It actually suddenly contracts back down and reestablishes a new equilibrium as a helium core fusion star. It goes to a place down here, which is roughly horizontal in shape, and we refer to it as the horizontal branch of the giant branch. The horizontal branch is a very short-lived phase. It only lasts for a sun-like star about 100 million years in this state. The reason why it lasts much less time than it did on the main sequence is helium fusion into carbon. The mass difference between carbon and the helium products going in is much smaller. So there's less energy yield per fusion of the nuclei. So hydrogen fusion is the highest yield nuclear fusion there is. Helium to carbon and oxygen is the second highest. But that second highest is different by about almost a factor of 100, a factor of 10 to 100. And so as a consequence, when you take all the factors into account, it spends about 100 times less on the horizontal branch than it did on the main sequence. Because even though it's, it's got prodigious luminosity requirements, the fuel is less efficient. It's gone from burning high test to the cheapest regular gas. Now, as you're burning fu fusion, 
by helium in the core, in, by fusion into carbon and oxygen, there's still hydrogen burning going on in a little thin shell outside of that helium fusing core. The helium fusion is making carbon and oxygen. But it's not hot, hot enough for carbon fusion to occur. So the carbon and oxygen do what helium did on the main sequence. They just collect in the, in the core as an ash, and they build up. And so we see the same sort of thing we saw in the main sequence recapitulated up here on the horizontal branch. As you begin to burn nuclear fuel, in this case helium in the core, the ash products, the byproducts, in this case carbon and oxygen, build up in the core because they can't do anything else. And eventually, they begin to build up so fast that they eventually begin to muscle out the helium burning into another shell. And so I end up with this double shell structure just about the time after 100 million years, I exhaust helium fusion. I get an inert carbon-oxygen ash core in the center, a thin shell of helium fusion on the outside of that, a thin shell of hydrogen fusion on top of that, and then the rest of the star is just this gigantic envelope sitting there down below watching all this crazy nuclear stuff going on inside. If I take a star the size of the sun, it will run out of its helium in 100 million years. So this nice stable intermediate stage doesn't last very long. And when the sun runs out of, or the star runs out of helium in its core, when the horizontal branch star can no longer fuse helium in the core, it's got to leave the horizontal branch. And it will do about the same thing it did when it left the main sequence. It will swell up again into a red giant. So when the helium runs out in the core, the sun star basically finds itself once again being a shell burning star with an inert core. Shell burning is, is relatively unstable. So it begins to make more energy than it can possibly produce, but uh, get rid of by luminosity. The extra energy goes into making the star swell up again. And so the star begins climbing back up the red giant branch, but it's climbing it and kind of missing it a little bit. In fact, it's going to get brighter than it did before on the first time it went up the red giant branch. This second red giant branch, because it kind of appro is approached by the second, uh, the first giant branch is approached by the second, is often called the asymptotic red giant branch. It's the long, long name we use for it. Now, the inert carbon-oxygen core is collapsing under its own weight. But unlike the case with the helium core earlier, towards the top of the giant branch, when we reach the top, start reaching the top of the asymptotic giant branch, the core evolution basically freezes up. It never gets hot enough for carbon fusion to occur. Carbon fusion needs to have a temperature of around 600 million degrees Kelvin. The star isn't big enough. There's not enough pressure in the star to achieve that temperature. So it never, ever ignites carbon fusion. So it's about to end its, fusing, its, its phase of lifetime where it gets energy by fusion. So what we end up with is a tiny compact carbon-oxygen core and a thin shell of helium fusion surrounded by a thin shell of hydrogen fusion inside of this really big extended cool envelope. Turns out that that helium and hydrogen shells are unstable, and they begin to pulsate. They go, whoop, they blow up suddenly and calm back down, fire up suddenly and calm back down. Imagine a malfunctioning furnace that's suddenly just blasting a bunch of stuff out and it says, oh, wait a minute, I'm too bright, and shuts off completely for a half hour. And the room gets really cold and it says, oh, I need to make a lot of heat and you know, blast furnace for a while. The temperature swings way up and it says, oh, oh, I'm way too bright, stops abruptly and then cools off. It'll drive you nuts in your house. It's called an unstable pulsation. Inside of a star, these unstable pulsations become increasingly violent 
that they eventually dump enough energy into the surrounding envelope that they actually begin blowing off the envelope as a stellar wind. And so slowly but surely, what's going to happen here is the star is basically going to blow its envelope off. This slowly, again, this is not going to be kaboom, blow its envelope off. This is going to be kind of shrug it off over a period of about 10 or 30,000 years. So it takes a long time on human scales, but 10 or 20,000 years on a star scale is almost instantaneous. So what happens is it reaches the top of the asymptotic giant branch, and before it can even, it never gets hot enough to fuse carbon and oxygen, so the core has stopped its evolution. The envelope blows off and eventually strips the core of its surrounding gas. That gas blows out into space. The inner core is extremely hot. Ultraviolet radiation pouring off that hot inner core causes that envelope gas to suddenly light up. And so the star goes from this sort of bloated red giant thing making a bunch of wind to suddenly flowering as one of the most beautiful objects in the heavens, a planetary nebula. Now a little bit about the name here, since we're talking about life and planets. The term planetary nebula has nothing to do with planets. You don't make planets out of a planetary nebula. They were called that because in the earliest primitive telescopes, these objects look like a round disk, just like a planet looks like in the telescope. The difference was it didn't move night to night in its orbit. So they wanted to distinguish these things. They said, well, those are those things that look like planets that don't move. And so they unfortunately called it planetary nebulae. That's unfortunate because the name stuck, even though it has nothing to do with planets. I just have to say that because it's always a source of confusion. So in this picture here, this beautiful object's called the Cat's Eye Nebula. These colors are approximately real. This is the gas fluorescing and lining up. There is the carbon-oxygen core down in the center, still shining from residual heat. There's no fusion going on. And then the outer envelope is slowly but surely wafting away. The sun is going to do this eventually. The sun is going to basically lose about half of its mass in the envelope and leave behind roughly another half in a carbon-oxygen core in the center. This carbon-oxygen core, once the gas goes away, begins to very rapidly cool off and fade out very, very quickly. And so the star goes very bright, zips across the HR diagram to very high temperatures, because we're now seeing the bare naked carbon oxygen core, and then it begins to very rapidly fade out, eventually becoming a white dwarf. So the leftover remnant core behind, after the envelope is stripped away, becomes a carbon oxygen white dwarf. The carbon-oxygen white dwarf has a mass anywhere from 0.4 to 1 times the mass of the sun. It depends upon the size of the star. Those four solar mass stars at the upper end maybe get up as much as a 1.2 solar mass core. Star a little bit smaller than the sun will make about a 0.4 solar mass core. I think I'm trying to remember the numbers off the top of my head, and I know I'm going to screw this up, but I think the sun's core will be something like 0 0.47, 0 0.48 solar masses. The average for stars sort of in this low mass range is around 0.6 solar masses. However, you take all of that mass and you stuff it into a ball the size of the Earth. So this is the leftover very central core of the star, the carbon and oxygen ash left over from that last helium burning stage, helium fusion stage is now becoming basically this remnant is called a white dwarf. It's white because it's, most of the ones we see are very, very hot still. They're white hot, literally. But they shine now only because they're hot. There's no nuclear fusion at all. Nuclear fusion is totally shut down. This thing is a dying ember.
This thing is basically only shining because it's got a tremendous amount of residual heat. Remember, this thing used to be a few hundred million degrees Kelvin when it was buried deep inside the star. But once it suddenly is liberated from its surrounding envelope, it cools off extremely rapidly. Most white dwarfs we see in the sky have temperatures between about 20,000 degrees Kelvin and about five or six, four or 5,000 degrees Kelvin. So this, a small version of this, is what the sun is going to look like sometime in the near future when it's maybe 12 and a half billion years old. So something like eight, seven or eight billion years in our future, this is what the sun will look like, a tiny, faint, dying ember of its former bright self. So this is what happens to low-mass stars. A white dwarf, those mysterious objects in the lower left-hand corner of the HR diagram, are in fact not stars, they're the corpses of low-mass stars, still glowing with their heat. Some of these things can glow for trillions of years. They take a very long time to cool off once they hit that final cooling track. But no fusion anymore, they're no longer bona fide stars. Any questions about low-mass stars before we go further? That was an awful lot of stuff. So the whole game, the whole game I just described takes a little over a billion and a half years for a star like the sun. So we have a 10 billion year period where the sun is shining pretty steadily, you know, slight increase in brightness over its history, where it's fusing hydrogen to helium in its core. That's sort of the long main part of the lifetime. The end of its life is a much shorter period. In round numbers, about a tenth, the last tenth of its life, is spent blowing up into a red giant. It's pretty clear that blowing up into a red giant is not going to be a great thing for life in the solar system. And some of your homework problems are asking you to, to do a couple of calculations to sort of show you what those numbers look like. What's the temperature of the Earth going to be like when the sun is 2,350 times brighter than it is today? Hot enough to boil water? Hot enough to melt sand? Well, that's what your, the homework question is asking you. We're going to come back to this question of what happens to the Earth and the solar system when the sun goes through its evolution as one of the last lectures of the classes. We're going to talk about death in the solar system. And we're going to go through the detailed calculations just for our sun and put the real solar system and throw all the goodies in and see what, what, what is our future going to look like. But this is what we see for low-mass stars. Now, high-mass stars... Up to the beginning of the main sequence phase, and the end of the main sequence phase, the evolution is pretty much the same. Hydrogen is fusing into helium in the core. The helium is building up steadily until finally it begins to shove the hydrogen out of the core, and you eventually reach hydrogen core exhaustion. However, because we're a very high-mass star, we're burning our fuel at a furious rate. And we run out after a few million years, a few hundred million years for the latest B stars, within a couple of million years for the hottest, biggest O stars. Now, when that happens, we're already up here in the high luminosity, very, very hot surface portion of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. These are O and B stars. What's going to happen is that fusion shell begins to form around the inert helium core. It begins to go slightly unstable. It produces more energy than the star can radiate away, and it begins to track across the HR diagram. Although in this case, almost all the excess energy goes into making the star swell up tremendously and cooling off. The star basically goes from being a blue main sequence star into being a red supergiant. So very high mass stars are already luminous to start with. They become red supergiant stars. The higher the mass you start with, way up here in the very thin O and B stars, 
the higher the luminosity of the supergiant. This procedure occurs just as before, but a whole lot faster because it's a lot bigger star. The collapse is quicker. The hydrogen, the helium in the core begins to heat up as it shrinks. Eventually the temperature rises to 100 million degrees and poof, ignites helium into carbon-oxygen fusion in the core. So we get helium fusion ignite about the time that the star has made this very rapid traverse of the HR diagram into the super, red supergiant branch. When the helium ignites in the core, the star suddenly reestablishes the equilibrium and it becomes very briefly a helium burning star. But just like before, helium fusion is very inefficient and so it doesn't last very long. So what happens is, after the helium fusion ignites, the star actually begins to settle down. It begins to shrink back in size and heats back up again. It actually gets a little brighter than it was before. It follows this blue line back and it becomes a blue supergiant. It never gets all the way back to the main sequence. It's not going to have time to. This phase only lasts for about 100,000 years. Look at the contrast in time scales. Stars like the Sun fuse hydrogen to helium for 10 billion years. They take a billion years to climb the uh, red giant branch. They sit for 100 million years on the horizontal branch in this helium fusion stage. Supermassive stars, big stars, burn out their hydrogen in 10 million years. They run out of helium in 100,000 years. Remember, human beings have been recognizable as a separate species, Homo sapiens, for only about two or 300,000 years. So these are stars whose evolution time scale becomes now the time scale of the existence of species on the Earth, not geologic time scales anymore. Now, just as before, helium fusion leads to the production of carbon and oxygen. The carbon and oxygen builds up in the core. The ash pile gets bigger and bigger. Eventually, it shoves out the helium into a shell, and you once again get this carbon-oxygen core surrounded by a helium fusion shell, surrounded by a thin hydrogen fusion shell. The core becomes unstable under its own weight. It begins to slowly collapse. As it collapses, it heats. Kind of doing this little sing-song here. However, big difference. In the big star, there's enough pressure there. There's enough stuff on top of it crushing down upon it that eventually the core heats up to 600 million degrees Kelvin, when it reaches that 600 million degrees Kelvin, poof, a new fusion reaction comes into play. Carbon and carbon can actually begin to fuse, just like hydrogen to helium and helium into carbon and oxygen. When carbon fuses together, you get all kinds of wonderful stuff out. Two carbons directly makes an element with 12 protons. That's magnesium. You get neon, aluminum, and sodium. So already we've got fusion beginning to build us some fairly heavy elements, but these are all fairly rare elements except for neon is relatively common. So carbon fusion produces energy. Basically makes elements that are slightly more massive, less massive than the initial two carbons that actually went into the reaction. These are reactions going on at very high temperatures, so you get all kinds of really complex nuclear reaction networks. That's why there's not a single product here. And it produces a little bit of energy. But this nuclear fusion, if helium was less efficient than hydrogen, carbon fusion is even less efficient still. And so it doesn't last very long. Now, at this point, which way the star goes in its subsequent evolution? We reach another branch, another fork in the road. If you're an intermediate mass star, between four and eight solar masses, you follow one path. If you're a high mass star, which is above eight solar masses, you follow another. 
Let's follow the first path, the intermediate mass stars. If it's an intermediate mass star, you go through hydrogen fusion, then helium fusion, then carbon fusion. As carbon fusion goes on, you begin to build up neon and magnesium, primarily in your core, plus that oxygen that you're not doing anything with. Remember, it's a carbon-oxygen core, but only the carbon's fusing. So you begin to slowly build up an oxygen-neon-magnesium core, but it's never going to get hot enough to ignite the next fusion reaction up the, cha up the line. And so as a consequence, the evolution will stop once you reach the point that you start building up very rapidly this oxygen-neon-magnesium core, you get unstable pulsations. The unstable pulsations fluff the envelope off and strip away the envelope and leave behind that little tiny hot oxygen-neon-magnesium core. And you get an object, which is a very rare object, but we found a few of them, which are oxygen-neon-magnesium white dwarfs. So it's a white dwarf but it's made of different elements. Remember, the ones that came out of stars like the sun are carbon and oxygen. Those are the products of helium fusion. This, oxygen, neon, magnesium, is the products of helium and carbon fusion together, producing oxygen, neon, and magnesium. So as a consequence, the star basically goes through a little funny little dipsy doodle as it basically goes through the carbon burning phase. It tries to go back, but the carbon fusion is so short it just gives up, fluffs off its envelope, and then the white dwarf emerges from a gigantic planetary nebula. So at this point, the evolution of an intermediate mass star doesn't look all that different from that of a low mass star. The difference is it just went through one more fusion stage before it finally ran out of available fuel. It no longer could get hot enough to access the other forms of nuclear fusion available. And so if you're less than about eight times the mass of the sun, your evolution will end its existence, your star will end its existence and die as a white dwarf. If you're four solar masses and below, you're a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. If you're eight to four solar masses, we think it's an oxygen-neon-magnesium white dwarf. Those lines are very fuzzy. I will just sort of emphasize right now those lines are based on certain idealized situations. I won't go into the details of how you can fuzz around those lines, but they're approximately in the right place. All right. So what happens if your mass is above eight solar masses? Now we get some fun. <laughs> At this point, I'm going to stop drawing HR diagrams because the evolution of the core is so fast, the star can't respond on the outside. It's like, what's going on in the center? The outer parts of the star are saying, OK, I'm getting enough energy coming up from below to make up for the stuff I'm losing but I don't like the sound of what's going on deep inside. What's happening deep inside happens so fast, the star's already dead. It just doesn't know it yet. Run out of carbon fusion, got an oxygen-neon-magnesium core. Oxygen-neon-magnesium core collapses, begins to heat up. As it heats up, it eventually crosses about 1.2 billion degrees Kelvin. When that happens, neon fusion ignites. Neon produces as its fusion oxygen and magnesium. It's such an inefficient fuel, it'll burn through all its neon in three years. Okay? Carbon, basically a big star, a 10 or 20 solar mass star, will burn through its carbon in a thousand years, producing primarily neon and magnesium in the core. The neon collapse, trigger neon burning in the core, three years. Okay? Eventually, oxygen, magnesium, and a bunch of other junk begins to build up in the core. 
the ash pile builds up and you push out the next shell. Oxygen ignites at a slightly higher temperature. Oxygen's production is silicon, sulfur, and calcium. Recognize some of these elements? We've heard of these before. Calcium in our bones. Silicon that makes up most of the body of the earth, along with sulfur, which is an essential biological compound. Oxygen, we've all seen oxygen. Magnesium, a trace element essential for life. Only neon is an inert gas. The only use around here is for fluorescent lights and beer signs. Oxygen is even more inefficient. You blow through a star's worth of oxygen in four months, about an academic quarter. So silicon begins to collect in the core. You shove out a shell. You get a silicon core. The silicon core collapses. The temperature goes up. Silicon fuses through an amazing reaction network that's got all kinds of pathways through it and finally produces nickel and a little bit of iron. It burns through a star's worth of silicon, a sun's worth of silicon in five days. So inefficient is the nuclear fusion. Iron and nickel can't fuse into anything. They build up in a shell. So at the end of that little time, this is a period lasting here now, a little over a thousand years since it ignites carbon. A thousand years later, later, the inside of the star looks like this. It's got an inert core containing mostly iron nickel. This iron nickel core has a mass between 1 and 1.4 times the mass of our sun, and it is the size of the Earth. It is at a temperature approaching tens of billions of degrees Kelvin. It is surrounded by a thin shell fusing silicon into high elements, which rain down on the core. Surrounded by that is an oxygen fusion shell, surrounded by a neon fusion shell, surrounded by a carbon fusion shell, surrounded by a helium fusion shell, and still hanging on by its thumbnails is hydrogen fusion, doing its best. Hydrogen makes helium, which rains into the helium shell, which burns up, which rains carbon and oxygen, and we get this onion skin structure. The iron and nickel is sitting there, and the iron core continues to build up until eventually its own weight becomes bigger than gravity can sustain. This is five days after ignition of silicon. At the end of silicon fusion, the star is done. There's no more nuclear fusion. It doesn't matter how hot it gets. And the reason is because there's a change in nuclear physics with heavy elements. Above iron and nickel, fusion doesn't create energy. Fusion results in nuclei which are heavier than the input products. And that only happens if you inject not only nuclei, but you have to inject energy. So now we go from a, if you will, for those of you who are chemists, from an exothermic reaction, an energy-producing reaction, to an energy-sucking reaction, an endothermic reaction. So nuclear fusion hits the wall. It's climbed to the top, to the Everest of the curve of nuclear binding energy. It's out of fuel. Now, stars shine because they're hot. The star, if you had no sources of fusion whatsoever, nothing, not a bit, would still shine because of gravitational contraction. It would tap its own gravitational field to make up its energy. But the star can use fusion. So it begins to borrow against its gravity. It basically says, okay, well, I could collapse or I could use up as much all this hydrogen I got. So it spends all its hydrogen. Then it builds up helium. It says, well, I'll spend the helium. Ah, but the helium isn't very much and it doesn't very efficient. It doesn't go very far. Then you spend your carbon. Then your neon then your oxygen. 
than your silicon. You're building up a million years, 10 million years long debt of gravitational energy. And then all of a sudden the bank account runs dry. The nuclear fusion bank account is empty and the bill collector shows up and says, pay me and pay me now. The nickel core is one to 1.4 times the mass of the sun. It is the size of the earth and it suddenly finds it's no longer supported against its own incredible gravity. It's at a temperature of a few billion degrees Kelvin and the bottom falls out of it. It collapses on its own weight. One second after the collapse begins, it is shrunk from the size of the Earth to 50 kilometers. The surface is moving at one quarter the speed of light. The, pressure, the density inside is climbed to the point that the density inside is indistinguishable from the density inside of an atomic nucleus. And all of a sudden, nature says, oh, we're in the nuclear density regime, and the rules change. Collapse no longer leads anywhere. And the collapse comes down from zero to a quarter of the speed of light, stops cold. Because all of a sudden the strong nuclear force says, no, stop. But you can't stop something moving at a quarter of the speed of light on a dime. So it stops and cocks the spring. And then one millisecond later, <laughs> jumps out. The gas falling in sees a wall of nuclear material coming towards it at a quarter of the speed of light. It hits, produces an immense shock wave, and this little blue supergiant star here, one second it's just sort of a general boring blue supergiant star, the next second it is detonated. Detonated with a light of a trillion suns. It can be seen across the visible universe. It becomes what's called a supernova explosion. So this last little bounce of the core basically tears the envelope off the star not the little gradual, oh yeah, let's kind of get rid of this over the next few million years. It blows off the shell. Tens of solar masses explosively. Blasting through a nuclear blast wave, and that nuclear blast wave causes runaway thermonuclear reactions in its wake, driving it further. When the star becomes literally as bright as a trillion suns for a very, very brief instant, and we call these a supernova. Two kinds of fusion occur in the explosion. Explosive nuclear fusion basically takes whatever hydrogen and helium gets in its way and the stuff flashes into light elements all the way up to iron and nickel. You form them in proportion to something called nuclear statistical equilibrium and you begin to basically build the entire periodic table out of hydrogen and helium. Furthermore, that immense explosion that went on below produces tremendous amounts of neutrons. Those neutrons go smashing into the new elements and begin to build even heavier elements in those few moments, basically builds up the entire periodic table of the elements from carbon to uranium, and even goes beyond into radioactively unstable elements that flash their way back into heavy elements. So we go from something that originally was mostly hydrogen and helium and we basically make everything, and I do mean everything, in the periodic table in the proportions that we see them here on the Earth. The heavy elements <coughs> are in the expanding envelope. The expanding envelope blasts that material into interstellar space, eventually fading out, disappearing and mixing with the interstellar gas. The next generation of stars bear within it those elements are seeded, the gas is polluted with the metals, and each subsequent generation of stars has more 
and more metal content from all the supernovae that blew up before that. This picture here, which we saw at the beginning of class, and of course before class on my laptop, and here, is called the Crab Nebula. It's in the constellation of Taurus, right up now in the fall summer sky. A little over 2,000 years ago, eh, really nothing to look at there. In the year 1054 AD, Chinese astronomers noticed that there was a star there brighter than the crescent moon. Astronomers turning their telescope to that same location in the late 19th century saw this glowing ball of gas. And only in the late 20th century, middle 20th century, did they realize that the Chinese guest star of 1054 was the explosion that created what they called the Crab Nebula in the constellation of Taurus. All of these filaments of material here, I can take their spectrum, they are loaded with carbon, oxygen, neon, magnesium, iron, silicon in massive proportions. This is the outcome of the detonation of a very, very massive star. But deep inside, there's still something left. Supernovae are so bright. Here's a picture from this morning's astronomy picture of the day that they outshine the entire galaxy of stars that they live in for a brief period. Here's a supernova discovered just a couple of weeks ago in this tiny galaxy far away. This galaxy contains hundreds of billions of stars, and yet one of them now is completely visible. All the other bright spots around here, those are stars in our own galaxy. We're looking out through our galaxy and seeing this one star ending its life in this other galaxy far away. We can see supernovae as far away as we can see the visible edge of the universe. They're the brightest things in the universe for a very, very brief time. But what's left behind? What happened to that core that caused all this trouble? Depends. If its mass is less than about two times the mass of the sun in the end, it forms an object called a neutron star. The nuclear combinations inside of it basically turn all the protons and electrons into a single ball of neutrons. It weighs one and a half times the mass of the sun, and it's the size of the island of Manhattan, 10 kilometers across. However, if the mass is above two, maybe two and a half, it's really hard to tell because we have no idea what material at this kind of density is like. We can't make it on the Earth yet. But we don't want to make it on the Earth. It will collapse completely under its own weight, finally falling down to such a size that nothing, not even light, can escape from its surface. It will wrap the structure of space and time itself around it like a cloak and become this mysterious object called a black hole. It will basically fall in upon itself and just like the Cheshire Crick cat, the cat's gone, but only the grin of gravity is behind. These are probably very, very rare objects, but we do in fact see both neutron stars. There's a neutron star at the center of the Crab Nebula of about the right size and about the right temperature and age. We do in fact find now multiple evidence for black holes throughout the galaxy and elsewhere. So to summarize, the post-main sequence star of an evolution depends upon its mass. Low-mass stars have long, slow lives of billions to trillions of years and end up as white dwarfs. The envelopes of the low-mass stars go out into the interstellar gas and enrich it with carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, which with hydrogen are the four principal elements of life. High-mass stars live fast, die young in a few million years, but they produce all of the heavy elements in their last few seconds. The interesting conclusion of all of this work is to me one of the most surprising ideas to come out of 20th century astrophysics. The oxygen in our blood, the iron in our blood, the calcium in our bones, all had its origin in the center of an exploding star long before the Earth was ever born. We are, in the most literal sense, made of stardust. See you all tomorrow.